Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is November the 24th, 2021 uh, in the United States. It's a Wednesday, I guess, all around the world. November 24th is a Wednesday. One day before Thanksgiving here, thanking, I'm not quite sure for what, but uh, uh, 2021, in our own age, of course, we tend to be a little parochial and only think of most recent things. 2021 is the 200th anniversary of something of great significance, the Greek War of Independence. Um, began, at least according to our calendar, uh, in February 1821. Uh, here's a description of how it began. It began on 6th of March 1821, or 22nd of February, according to the calendar at use in Southeast Europe at the time. A senior officer in the Russian Imperial Service slipped across the river Pruth with a handful of retainers. Um, uh, the hero, uh, and I'm uh, I'm doing my own editorial here. His name was Alexandre Ypsilantis, and he'd recently become the leader of the Friendly Society. Two days later, in Jassy, the Moldavian capital, Ypsilantis issued a proclamation headed, Fight for Faith and Fatherland. The hour has come, O men of Hellas, the enlightened peoples of Europe, full of gratitude for the benefits bequeathed by our ancestors themselves, eagerly await the liberty of the Hellenes. Um, the language of nationalism was born, and the Greeks, as always, shaped, framed uh, modern history. Um, the images, of course, of the Greek War of Independence of 1821 are dramatic and romantic and have framed this idea of independence and nationhood ever since. We're going to do a show um, in a few weeks, uh, about a book specifically on the Greek Revolution by Mark Mazar, very distinguished modern historian, 1821 and the Making of Modern Europe. But I want to think about the Greek uh, War of Independence in a broader context of Greece itself. And those uh, lines that I quoted are from a new book by Roderick Beaton, The Greeks, A Global History. And I'm thrilled that Roderick is joining us from Kent, overlooking the North Sea uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, Roderick, uh, the Greek War of Independence of 1821, in terms of this 200th anniversary, I, I know you just did a, a big conference. You keynoted a conference in Edinburgh on this. Looking back 200 years, what is the real significance of the Greek War of Independence in global terms. Well, thank you for having me on the show, and uh, I'll try to answer that question in, uh, and I'll try to do it very, uh, <clears throat> very quickly. Um, it was the first time that a new nation state was created in the old world of Europe. Uh, you Americans had um, blazed the trail with uh, your revolution against us Brits in the 1770s. The French had uh, abolished their monarchy and beheaded their king in the revolution that began in 1789. But that didn't end too well. Napoleon attempted to take over the whole of Europe and was then defeated. 
And it was actually the Greeks beginning the revolution exactly 200 years ago this year, who began to blaze the trail for the old world of Europe. They rebelled against their masters, the uh, Muslim Ottoman Empire ruled from Istanbul or Constantinople, and they fought uh, very hard and bitterly and often brutally for the right of their own self-determination. And against all the odds and all reasonable expectation of the time, they succeeded to the extent that their country was recognized as sovereign and independent by the great powers of Europe by a treaty of 1830. So after almost 10 years of bitter fighting, the Greeks got their own independence. But that achievement also began the whole change in the map of Europe from the Europe of vast, sprawling, multi-ethnic uh, imperial states, empires, to the Europe of independent nation states that um, has gradually taken over ever since. Um, and of course, we think of Greece and modern Greece in the context of those nation states, of Greece being a, a territorial place, a piece of geography in the southeastern corner, in the southeastern pocket of Europe. But my sense, Roderick, about your wonderful new book, The Greeks, A Global History, is that there is uh, a delicious irony at the heart, perhaps, of the history of the Greeks as a global history. You note at the beginning of the book, when we look at Greek history through this perspective and tease out the multiple ways in which Greeks have interacted with all manner of outsiders over more than three millennia, we reach the remarkable conclusion that Greeks have got just about everywhere. Today, the Greek language, the art and archaeology of many different periods of the Greek past, Greek philosophy, literature, and the ancient Greek contributions to science, medicine, law, and politics are studied in schools and universities from Chile to China, from Norway to New Zealand, from Siberia to South Africa. That's the, that's the key argument in the Greeks, a global history. And yet, when we think of Greece, as you suggested, in terms of this war of independence, we think of this struggle to carve out an independent piece of geography in the southeastern corner of Europe. Um, can we think then of the struggle for independence as being quintessentially Greek? Or is it something in some ways antithetical to the real traditions of what it means to be uh, Greek, Roderick? Well, I love historical ironies, so I'm rather with you on that. And indeed, my book, which covers three and a half thousand years of history, has its share of uh, historical ironies. Um, yes, in some ways, that remarkable achievement uh, that began 200 years ago is not typical. And even during those two, many of those 200 years, the Greeks uh, have always been much more than the nation state that they also memorably and successfully carved out of the empire to which they were subject. But your, your question, I mean, it very neatly captures uh, something that is, I think, not a contradiction, but it just pulls in different ways about the whole story of the Greeks and indeed the nature of the Greeks. Because uh, all Greeks, I think, probably wherever they live in the 
world today are proud of the Greek state and to some extent, perhaps a very large extent, would identify with it. But the Greek language has always been the language of and the culture of people who've lived over much wider areas than that quite small concentration of Greek-speaking people that won their freedom in the 1820s. Even at the time in the 1820s, when Greece was, uh, when Greece first became free, it was actually much smaller than even Greece today, which particularly by American standards is, you know, it's still really quite a small country. But um, something like three times as many Greek-speaking Orthodox Christians, people in other words who would um, in today's terms be called Greek, lived outside the boundaries of that independent state as lived within it. And the ups and downs of history during 200 years have caused some very traumatic shifts. People have become refugees, they've been uh, they've been either killed or exiled, they've had to move home, and the geographical boundaries of that Greek-speaking world have always been fluid, and despite the consolidation and the successes of the Greek nation-state, they remain wide open today. One of the points I do like to make in my book is that the Greek language and Greek-speaking Greek people can be found in every one of the world's inhabited continents. And that's the result of a, an outward spreading, a diaspora, it's often called, of Greeks during the last um, less than 200 years, probably about 100 to 150 years. Very large numbers of Greeks moved from Greece and from the Ottoman Empire to North America, particularly around the turn of the 20th century. Yeah, we um, we did a show uh, a few weeks ago by uh, an Indian scholar who's based, an Anglo Anglo American Indian scholar, Parag Khanna, who's based in Singapore, quintessential example of our new global elite, who has a new book out called Move, which tries to sort of redefine humanity in terms of its endless movement. I guess in a odd kind of way, the Greeks capture that more than anything else. Do you think that's why Homer? is the quintessential Greek. You begin your, your history or, or early in your history, you talk about Homer because his work is about movement. His work is about voyaging and longing and traveling. Yes, I mean, the Greeks have always been doing it. They've always been on the move. And no doubt because of the geographical area where they started out, they've always tended to do it by sea because the original heartland of the, that southern bit of the Balkan Peninsula, it's all basically mountains and islands. If you live on the mainland, it's really quite difficult to get from one valley to the next. And an awful lot of people actually live on islands. Um, so you can, whether you live on an island or on the mainland, the best way to get to anywhere else is actually to get in a boat. And in an extraordinary way, Greeks seem to have been doing that even from the time of the Bronze, the Bronze Age, they were sailing, they were trading, uh, possibly raiding, we don't quite know, but they were getting around all of the Eastern Mediterranean into the Western Mediterranean and indeed into the Black Sea, even during the Bronze Age. And you're absolutely right to focus on Homer. The Iliad and the Odyssey of Homer are the first written works, the first poems, the first narratives um, 
to be written to be written down that have also been continuously read and studied and copied and discussed and translated and imitated ever since uh, without a break. And those are stories of people on the move. The Iliad, the great war story, um, some people argue about whether it actually celebrates war or not. I would say that it does not, but it's all about war. There's an awful lot of killing. But the basis of the Iliad is that a bunch of Greeks got in a thousand ships and they crossed all the way across from one side of the Aegean Sea to the other to set uh, siege to Troy, which they eventually trashed. And the other story, the Odyssey, is a story of what happened to one of the kings of these Greeks. There were lots of kings from the different little cities and islands. After they trashed the city of Troy, they had to get home. And although the distance is nowadays nothing to speak of, in those days, it was clearly a big deal. And Odysseus actually took all of 10 years to get back from Troy in the, uh, the northwest corner of what is today Turkey to his native island of Ithaca off the west coast of today's Greece. And he went all over the Mediterranean. He went probably right through the Straits of Gibraltar. According to the story, he even visited the underworld, the world of the dead. He mm. got everywhere. And it's a great travel narrative. But I want and to the Greeks have always been, of course, like many other peoples who have been spread around the world. The Jews come to mind, I guess the Chinese, great travelers. You note at the end of your book that one of the most distinguished and certainly wealthiest modern Greeks is the shipping magnate uh, Onassis, and it's no coincidence that he went into the shipping business. You also mentioned, Roderick, this, again, this tension uh, between travel and home and this longing for home. Uh, I, I wonder, you know, it's not possible really to talk about the Greeks without talking about Socrates. Do you think that Socrates' major contribution to Greekness, whatever that word is, is to try to, de to define what home is. I wonder, I'm not sure it's so much about home. I think for Socrates, it's about being human. Well, you know, the political home, or maybe that's Aristotle. Aristotle is more the politics. I mean, Socrates wasn't terribly into politics. Um, but he's, I mean, he's really the founder of moral philosophy. He's the founder of, I mean, he's the first who really asks, invites us all to ask questions about our own identity, who we are, what we are, what we're on earth for, and how we're able to make uh, our lives valuable to ourselves and to others. He has this uh, wonderful uh, statement that a life that you don't take the trouble to examine just isn't worth living at all. That's my free translation of his more succinct phrase in Greek. But he was talked a lot about virtue, and that wasn't the kind of namby pamby being good. Virtue in ancient Greek was a quite a it was a robust, it was a competitive concept, but it really meant meant doing the best or getting the best out of the very fact of the human condition. But Socrates came from Athens. He lived nearly all of it, all his life in the city. <clears throat> he left it on occasion to go on campaign. But when he was condemned to death and he was given the choice of commuting yeah. his sentence 
uh, to exile. He was 70 years old at the time. And he said, why should I go around the world like a rolling stone? I prefer death. I guess that's my point. Yeah, uh, you, you put it in beautiful terms, Roderick. That's my point about Socrates. Maybe he didn't write about home, but he lived his life in, in, in principle around home. And as you say, at the end of his life, in the famous Platonic Dialogues, he chose death over exile. And of course, Homer is all about exile. The third figure in all this who always comes up, of course, is Plato, who wrote Socrates down. Where does Plato fit into this definition of Greekness? If 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 Socrates defined virtue and Homer uh, was the uh, the philosopher or the the, the narrator of travel, uh, where does Plato fit in? Plato is the great theorist. Plato really invents philosophical theory in a way that is still beloved of many who grapple with abstract ideas today. He also created such a... Uh, he was so fascinated by the the idea of a world beyond ours that many of his ideas actually in strange ways filtered into the formative years of Christianity so that many of his ideas about a transcendent world beyond our own, about a God that we cannot know, about a reality that is uh, of which our own human earthly life is a pale copy, those ideas found their way into many aspects of mainstream Christianity. So Plato, you could say he founded modern philosophical speculation, philosophical theory, but when his ideas were grafted onto the Jewish uh, Old Testament tradition or the tradition of the Jewish scriptures, they also pr produced the blend which in the Middle Ages became known as theology, the attempt by rational human beings to attempt to understand that which by definition they're perhaps not really supposed to understand, namely the, uh, the nature of God. All of that begins with Plato. Perhaps uh, it's no uh, irony then that, that this theology has been turned into modern nationalism and creating, fetishizing the soil and the state and identity, which would have been deeply foreign to everyone in the world before 1800. Yes, I mean, and also, I mean, Plato did have some quite austere ideas about politics. He was no, mm. he came from a democratic city. He was no democrat himself. Right. Let's talk a little bit about democracy. Um, I can't do complete justice to your book. It's a wonderful book, uh, Roderick. But your third chapter is about inventing politics, discovering the, the cosmos. To what extent, and there's a lot of mythology and debate about this, so to what extent did the Greeks invent the idea of democracy? They did. Um, I mean, uh, Paul Cartledge has a wonderful, a wonderful book called Democracy Alive. Yeah, Paul was on the show, and of course, uh, he introduced me to you. So, well, I'm, uh, I was very, I'm very glad of that. But uh, no, I mean, I have a great respect for Paul Cartledge and his work. But Democracy Alive really tells that story in all its nuances, because you know, we we know we think we know that democracy came from ancient Greece, and it's true. The Greeks thought of it first. But actually, how they came to think of it, how they developed it, how it worked, 
is much more complicated than we know. And Paul has done a lot of really spade work to get behind that early story, because all too often in its early stages, it didn't work terribly well. Indeed, sometimes by our standards, you would say it didn't really work at all. And of course, as, as we hear endlessly, uh, women and slaves, uh, property owners or many mm. non-property owners were excluded from whatever this political arrangement was. So it certainly doesn't reflect our notions of democracy. It doesn't, but also, I mean, in quite, the, quite uh, I mean, timely, but rather alarming ways, ancient Athenian democracy is, uh, is, is in many ways the same as closer to what we now call populism. Everyone who counted as a citizen, which was we, means you're not, a, you're not a woman, you're not a slave, but all those men got up there on the on the hill called the Pnyx in uh, in in Athens, and you would get up to three thousand of those men at a time, and they would argue, they would shout one another down, they'd make long speeches, they'd vote, and motions would be carried. But from some of the accounts we've got of those, it's it sounds very like. Um, uh, you know, elements of mass hysteria would take hold. Sounds of like the internet, Roderick. Maybe, uh, maybe the Greeks invented the the, the yes. internet before, uh, as 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 always, they invented everything before we imagine we invented it. And speaking of invention, I'm talking to you from Silicon Valley, where we think we monopolize the idea of innovation. But we had another um, Greek uh, a classical historian, an expert, Armand Dango, who I know you know, uh, on the show, yeah. who's just written a book about ancient Greeks and innovation. What do you think the Greeks, both in antiquity and perhaps even in modernity, what have they contributed to the idea of innovation? Did they invent the very notion of innovation? Uh, they did invent an awful lot of notions, and very often the words that go with them are the proof of that. Um, and I'm just thinking, thinking aloud here, because innovation, of course, comes from a Latin root, not a Greek one. Um, there were, um, did they think innovation, innovation in itself? Interesting point. I would need to think about that one. But let me give you a couple of innovations that, uh, well, I mean, there are any number of innovations that we owe to the Greeks. I think the biggest of them all is the alphabet. Because what the Greeks did about the year, somewhere around about 800 BCE, they took one of the many competing existing writing systems that existed and they converted it. They changed it around in such a way that for the first time ever, it was possible to record with only a small number of symbols that we now call letters, all the sounds of human speech. The 20 or letters of the Greek alphabet were able to record both consonants and vowels. And that had never been done before. They adapted someone else's writing system from the Phoenicians who wrote, used a, a Semitic language related to ancient Hebrew. But the Phoenicians didn't write down the vowels. The Greeks thought of this idea. It sounds so simple. It's hard to believe it was such an innovation. But until that time, you could only record part of a word or some, you know, some a native speaker would have to guess what the word was to actually to be able to speak it. The Greeks could write words down. And I come in my book, I compare the invention of the alphabet to the invention of the internet or to the invention of, uh, you know, the digital age. It's through the binary system of computers that the very simple 
alternation of not and one, Silicon Valley is all about this, isn't it? Enables you to do all these things that we're doing today and the most extraordinary computing and communication. Um, the equivalent of the ancient world, what the Greeks did, they opened up possibilities both of communicating across distance and communicating across time because you could record living words in a way that generations later could still be reconstructed fully. And that's how we can still read the words and hear the words that they wrote up to almost 3,000 years ago. It is incredible. In your, your book, The Greeks, A Global History, is, is full of this remarkable, these remarkable uh, insights, which seem so simple, which aren't. I'm also curious, uh, Roderick, whether you think the Greeks invented the city. Uh, we had the another English historian, a, a, young, uh, a young man called Ben Wilson on the show recently, has written a very interesting book about the city. He argues that the Greeks essentially invented the notion of the city. Would you agree? Again, it depends, you, it depends what you mean by a city, because many aspects of what we now call urbanization are probably rather more recent. And it may be that, you know, cities like ancient Rome or ancient Peking, later Constantinople, which was a Greek city, these really laid the foundations for the metropolis, the big city as we know it today. The Greeks invented something more particular, and I think perhaps more special, that modern cities also depend on. And that is the idea of community. The Greek word polis means a city, but in ancient Greek, it also means something like a state. It's a community in which all the citizens have a role, they interact with one another, they form a community. And Aristotle, the philosopher, Right, I was thinking I should have had a slide of Aristotle. Of course, I didn't. And he's the fourth. He's the the fourth man after after Homer, Socrates, and Plato that we should include as as being ubiquitous in modern ideas. Aristotle writes a book, one of his many books, is called in Greek Politica, and this is exactly our word politics. The Greek word Politica means literally the affairs of the polis, that is the state. And the, perhaps the, mo the other most, the next most influential thing the Greeks invented after the alphabet was politics. Because the Greeks, all, wherever they traveled, they founded these small states based on a single city. They called it a polis. And they, you know, they set up the camp, they built their tents, they built their huts, and they started arguing about how they were going to govern themselves. And they did that all over the Mediterranean in small communities. So the self-governing small community, that's the essence of the city-state. And of course, it continues right through modern urbanization. So a city like London or New York or San Francisco or Los Angeles, um, it, however vast it is, it's got its forms of government, it's got its local government, it's got the various hierarchies. But it's in the ancient Greek city-state that for the first time the idea took hold that rules had to be made that applied to every citizen and also therefore obeyed by every citizen. The Greeks had a concept, they called it in Greek, isonomia, which means equality before the law. And that surely is fundamental to civilised life, urban life, as we know it today. 
Well, I am speaking with um, the great historian, uh, Roderick Beaton, the author of a wonderful new book, The Greeks, A Global History. He's written many books about the Greeks, but this book is just out. Uh, I'm, uh, in the second half of the show, I want to talk specifically about modern Greece over the last couple of hundred years since the War of Independence. So, Roderick, stay with us. We'll be back in a couple of minutes after this break. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back talking to Roderick Beaton, the author of The Greeks. Um, we talked in the first half of the show about the Greece of antiquity and the idea of Greekness in both a universal and specific term. Uh, we mentioned that um, we are today in 2021 um, celebrating the 200th anniversary of the Greek War of Independence. Uh, Roderick, reading the book, um, it occurred to me that the most quintessentially modern Greek figure of the last 200 years. We, we talked in the first part of the show about the Greeks inventing language uh, and the alphabet. Might ironically be uh, a man called Constantine Peter Cavafy, uh, who never lived in Greece itself. Tell me about this poet and why he's such a sort of romantic icon, someone who so captures the spirit of Greekness. Well, I mean, it's a moot question whether Greekness is really what his poems are about at all. Well, I, I guess but, that's the point. It's sort of... Though, yes, I mean, I, I would tend to argue that they are. But um, he is, by some margin, much the best known and most loved and most, certainly most widely translated uh, modern Greek poet um, of them all. Um, he was born in Alexandria in 1863. He lived for exactly 70 years. And... 
except for his childhood spent partly in England, he very rarely left the Egyptian port city of Alexandria, which at that time had a very large and thriving Greek community. It was a well-to-do Greek community. Greeks had gone to Egypt basically to make money out of the cotton trade and particularly exporting the raw cotton from Egypt to the rest of the world. Kavafi's family fell on hard times. Uh, they lost a fortune in the cotton trade and um, he turned to writing poetry instead. He's, um, I mean, he's always the, the odd one out and he writes about the Greek world in a way that... Um, is famously at a kind of angle, uh, as another writer famously said, an angle to the universe. It's just, it's, it's, the, it's an offbeat, unexpected approach. And during his lifetime, he was also extremely courageous in writing about homosexual experiences and homosexual desires at a time when it was uh, almost tab a, a taboo and indeed legally impossible in many countries. And one of the one of the strands of what appeals, I think, to many readers of Kavafi's uh, poetry in recent years has been uh, he's been, as it were, you know, become a kind of gay icon. But that uh, that doesn't do justice to Kavafi as a whole either. Many of his poems are personal. Some deal with sexuality. Many more deal with his other fascination was history and the Greek history and Greek history, but. The history that fascinates Kavafi is not the history of the Greek state or indeed the famous ancient uh, city-states of uh, city-states of ancient Greece. It's rather the Greek world of his own native city, Alexandria, which was founded, of course, by Alexander the Great, the the conqueror who conquered a great deal of the known world in the fourth century BCE and was the first really to spread the Greek language and Greek culture around a large part of the world. Kavafi identified with that Greek world of the diaspora, and he focuses in his historical poems on moments of Greek history that uh, people who studied Greek in school or university either never learned or tended to forget. It's the inglorious moments, the time when Greeks were subject to uh, the Romans or they were, they were part of the Byzantine Empire. Um, it's the, the Greeks after the, it, it's the Greeks during the time that the greatest uh, 18th century English historian Edward Gibbon called the period of decline and fall. Kavafi loves decline and fall. And he loves subverting everybody's idea of what is great or glorious. But he does have a wonderful and I think a touching, quiet, often ironic, but nonetheless real pride in the continuity of his own Greek language and the fact that Greeks had been interacting with people of other races and creeds and religions and uh, backgrounds in that part of, in the east, throughout the eastern Mediterranean for more than 2,000 years. It was a world, and you, and you put it, uh, um, you quote someone, he was a loyal Greek, but Greece for him mm. was not territorial. Racial purity bored him, so did political idealism. And of course, that's your notion, I think, of... Um, the Greeks is they're not racially pure; they're impure. But of course, they... well, I mean, yeah. I mean, you were quoting E.M. the great English novelist E.M. Forster there, who puts it much better and more succinctly than I was able to do. Thank you for thank you for that. Well, you picked him out. Um, 
Roderick, on the other hand, of course, the last 200 years has been a kind of tragedy, hasn't it? This elimination of Greek communities around the Eastern Mediterranean, particularly after the uh, the wars, the Balkan Wars, the wars after the First World War. Uh, many Greek communities around the Eastern Mediterranean, particularly in Turkey, have now disappeared from history. And there's a certain melancholy, I guess, to the, the end of your book, uh, where Greece is infor- uh, has been forced in the modern world to become a territory. You, you end in political terms with some discussion of um, uh, Alexis at Tsipras and the most recent economic crisis in Greece. Uh, I also, uh, interestingly enough, had uh, Yanis Varoufakis on the show, a uh, very radical Greek thinker, the former economics minister under Tsipras. Um, do you think people like y- uh, Yanis um somehow capture Greekness in terms of trying to figure out the complexities of early 21st century life. In other words, with people like Yanoufakis, has the idea of Greekness survived? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, uh, Varoufakis is, uh, is very, is extremely articulate and he writes, um, I'm not sure he was a great, uh, uh, a great finance minister, but he's, a, <laughs> he's an excellent writer. Yeah. And uh, I, I thoroughly enjoy- I probably I thoroughly, would agree with you on that. I thoroughly enjoyed his book on the on the on the financial crisis and of course his own his own part in it. To what extent does he represent Greece or Greekness today? I mean, he does. He certainly. I mean, he 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 certainly is a very articulate representative of one strand of that, which is in itself actually quite fascinating and contradictory. Because I mean, I don't. I've never actually met uh, Mr. Varoufakis, but you know, I've I've read him and I've seen him on TV and all the rest. I mean, he's. Uh, I mean, he he's an absolutely fluent. He's a semi-native speaker of English. Um, he's he he's uh, his his academic career is worldwide. He's in many ways he's a cosmopolitan figure. He's a you know, he's global in the terms of you know if you like the subtitle of of my book, and yet the political line that he was taking at that moment of crisis was at least to threaten for Greece to turn its back on the European Union, declare, um, you know, go back to the drachma uh, and, you know, declare, declare its own, its own rights, its own independence and to break away from the, from basically Western... Ironically enough, it's a return in a way to the spirit of the Greek war of independence. There's a language um, of resistance. Exactly, but also even at the time of the Greek War of Independence, there were also many people. Um, well, there was a great division then too between people on the one hand who primarily looked outwards towards international treaties, international foreign loans, uh, trying to make um, you know make peace and make friends abroad, and others, the the warlords we tend to call them, the charismatic figures, who also were the ones who won all the battles. Um, if you like the kind of Varoufakis figures, um, who did, you know, famously declare that they really wanted to go it alone. And the, the there are wonderful songs and slogans in which they talk about, you know, the slogan was liberty or death. There's, no, there's nothing in between. And 
Greece, if you like, has always, modern Greece, has always been an uneasy compromise between a, a genius for diplomacy and international relations and learning foreign languages and working with the rest of the world, being truly global on the one hand, and actually that kind of inward-looking sense of self-satisfaction, self-sufficiency, that, you know, damn it, if we have to, we will stand on our own two feet and defy all comers. And I recognize both those elements as very much part of, I don't want to generalize about national character, but I do see both those elements present right throughout the history of Greece in modern times. Roderick, we haven't talked about theater, but of course, for us, and perhaps for the Greeks themselves, Greece has always been the stage of world history. Sure, Marx wrote something about that. Um, and you end your book with a new kind of play. Um, the book, um, The Greeks, A Global History, doesn't end with what we traditionally associate with Greeks, but rather an Iranian refugee and a new wave of homelessness, a new wave of, I guess, Homeric tragedy that's sweeping uh, the Eastern Mediterranean. Why did you choose, and, and there's, there's this wonderful poem, I'm going to uh, quote it, um, uh, the, the poem, uh, it, it's a short poem, we the wandering, we the barefoot, we without space or country, we the burnt and fiery winds, we saw you with those final breaths that burnt a piece of the sea. Uh, this is a poem from an Iranian refugee who I think tried to, or, or came to Greece many other refugees from Afghanistan, from Iraq, from Syria. Um, and, and you say at the end of the book, in these lines, a 21st century refugee captures her first encounter with an Aegean landscape that has been celebrated by travelers, poets, and artists ever since Homer sang of the wine-dark sea some 30 centuries ago. How else but in her newly adopted language, Greek? So ironically enough, you say Greece lives on but with Iranian refugees. Absolutely. And uh, thank you for quoting those lines. Uh, I, I must admit, I, I really felt quite emotional listening to them. Um, and they encapsulate something that, I mean, for me, is very important about Greece or what you call, we're, talk, we're calling Greekness. It's about being Greek and speaking the Greek language is something that throughout history, people have become it's not simply a matter of ethnicity or where you're born, where you come from. And it seemed to me that's terribly important at the time in the last uh, dozen years when Greece has been on the front line of uh, inward migration of people displaced from the Middle East and other places um, by war and climate change, uh, desperate to make new homes for themselves in Europe. And for most of those, it's understood that Greece is a necessary staging post. But young, um, she was young uh, when she first arrived in Greece, uh, I believe some years ago. Uh, Hiva Panahi is her name, uh, a Kurdish Iranian, um, came to Greece as a refugee, settled in Greece, learnt the Greek language, and actually writes poems in uh, Greek as well as in her native Kurdish. And I think these lines just wonderfully movingly capture that sense of in-betweenness of the refugee coming to Greece, learning Greek, becoming part of a Greek-speaking world, 
and Greeks, however exactly you define them, ever since the time of Homer or even before, they've been going out and meeting other people and sometimes losing their identity to become, to convert to a different religion or adopt a different language. But many others have been coming in. Um, the process of becoming Greek, as I call it in the book, is something that began even before the time of Alexander the Great. And in various ways has actually been going on ever since. It has point. been going on ever since. You you capture it beautifully in your book, uh, The Greeks, A Global History. Roderick, uh, you're talking to me from your home in Kent in the United Kingdom. You're part of a great tradition of classical historians, of scholars of antiquity. You've dedicated your life to the study of the Greeks. Do you think of yourself as a Greek, given that, as you suggest in your book, Greekness isn't really territorial. If anything, it's philosophical, it's spiritual. Have you become a Greek over your life? I don't... <laughs> it's hard to say. I mean, you know, I live... But you live... embrace the ideals. I, I do, and I identify with so much of Greece. I love the country, and so many of my friends are, are Greek. But, you know, I'm a Scot, and I come from Scotland. I live in England. Uh, I write, I mean, I do write in Greek, I speak Greek fluently, but it's not my, it's not my own language. Um, I mean, I often joke that now that we have Brexit and we're not part of the European Union any longer, I mean, I, you know, I wish someone would give me a Greek passport so that I could come and go free. Well, I'm sure you could get one for, for, for your contribution to, to Greece over the years. Well, as a, but that, you know, I say, I say that in joking, I, you know, I, um, I, you know, I am kind of, what I where I come from, but yes, I'm a Brit who's well. If anyone's watching this from the Greek government or the Greek um, Greek immigration services, I think Roderick Beaton deserves to be made uh, an honorary Greek, certainly for this contribution, the Greeks of global history, and for his enormous scholarship over the years. Roderick, it's wonderful to talk to you. Um, as I said, uh, your book, The Greeks of Global History, is a central reading. In addition. Um, in these strange times, although for you as a historian of, of, of the world, there's nothing particularly unique about the, uh, the supposed uniqueness of our own age, of, of 2021. What else should people be reading? What other books do you think are essential reading in, uh, in 2021? Well, by coincidence, I mean, two great books on Greece, diff completely different aspects of Greece and the Greek world, came out, uh, at least in the UK, on the very same day that mine did. And, and these are also quite really large, really large books. They're good reads. But I'd like to think, like my book, they're not aimed at the specialist academic. Um, they are, um, and they're very, they're extremely readable. One is uh, The Greek Revolution, uh, uh, 1821 and the Making of Modern Europe by Mark Mazower, which I think you already said you're going to feature on your programme. And I thoroughly... Yeah, I've heard he's quite shy, Mark Mazower. I know him from many years ago, so uh, I'm going to force him to come on the show. I'm going to grab him and bring him on if he won't do it. But we're well, certainly, uh, certainly going to do a show about Mazower's new book, The Greek Revolution. He's a very distinguished modern historian. Well, I think it's a great book, and it really, it really deserves to be the definitive history of that revolution uh, for uh, from for a long time to come. I thoroughly recommend it. Uh, my other recommendation is by Bruce Clark, who uh, a journalist who worked for a long time on the uh, the Economist, uh, and it's called Athens: City of Wisdom, 
It's published in London by a publisher called Head of Zeus, and I'm afraid I didn't have foreknowledge of your question, so I haven't done the homework on uh, where or when it's published in the US. But this is a story of, I mean, Bruce Clark has done for this, the one city of Athens what I risk trying to do for the whole of the Greek world. Um, and in many ways, you know, I think it works really well taking a single city. But he starts in the time of Solon, the lawgiver, way back in the, um, you know, the very early days of classical, pre-classical Greece. And he takes it right through the, the classical times, through the Middle Ages. And because he's a, he's a journalist and he, he, he's lived in Athens, he knows the city very well. He's got a lot of really up-to-date information uh, and some very, I think, fine insights on how Athens in the last 20 years has become multicultural, the new prob the problems. Right. It's, a, it's really a global city. It's an enormous city. Um, in fact, global. it sort of dwarfs the rest of uh, Greece. Anyway... Uh, Roderick Beaton, the author of The Greeks, A Global History. Real honor to have you on the show, Roderick. We'll have to have you back. I'm sure you'll be authoring many new books on, on the Greeks and classical civilization. Thank you so much. Keep well and congratulations on a marvelous book. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms. All major podcast platforms carry the Keenon show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have a, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keenon show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com. Or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keenon. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community, and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not-too-distant future.